trying to make it real compared to what the projection is that some cultures write, some cultures tell stories, and then there's a value given to each of those. What we know, Janice, is that life, being, existence is not an either-or proposition. What about the possibility of Black people having been an oral people and a written people? Today on The Janice Adams Show, our guest is Max Rodriguez. He's founder and CEO of QBR, the Black Book Review. Founded in 1992, QBR is home to the Video Book Channel and the Harlem Book Fair, the nation's premier African-American celebration of books. Coverage of the Harlem Book Fair, you may have seen it, is now an annual event on C-SPAN's Book TV. First, the news. Today on the Janice Adams Show, how does one go from ace computer programmer to publisher and founder of a print publication, QBR, the Black Book Review magazine turned powerhouse website and producer of live events, including the Harlem Book Fair. It's now a national brand. Here's visionary founder Max Rodriguez to tell the story. I've always been an avid reader. And I would always read the New York Times Book Review and the New York Review of Books and maybe the Paris Review. And the first thing I would do would look to see what books were being covered that looked like me, that shared my experience. And more often than not, back then, 20 plus years ago, those books were far and few in between that were covered by those publications. And I said to myself, I said, geez, why not? Why isn't there such a publication? And I knew that if such a publication existed, I would simply read it. I, I would simply subscribe and, and that would have been that. But no such publication existed. Uh, so I said, so let me, let me start QBR. Um, uh, it started out as quarterly Black review of books. Our focus, uh, the market that we serve are those who write for or about the African diaspora experience. I make that distinction because there are many of us who write into our stories. And so I, I like making the distinction that while we focus on the African-American or the African diaspora experience, that it doesn't matter who writes the book. If it's about us, we want to know what's being said and we also want to know who is saying it. What is the frame of mind? What is the point of view, the perspective? So I began the review and I tell you how I, I asked my sister one day, I said, look, I have an idea for a book review publication. And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, fine. So I knew that I, I should at least do a little market survey. So what I would do is I would stand in front of a Barnes and Noble on Fifth Avenue, on 18th and Fifth Avenue. <laughs> and then now I saw a person of color walk outside having purchased a book. I would follow them with a five-question questionnaire, a five-part questionnaire. And you know New York City on a Saturday, no one has time. So I would start a questionnaire on 18th Street. By the time I finished... I'd be on 14th Street. I'd run back to catch the next buyer coming out of the store and ask the same questions. 
I did that 500 times. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And from that, 87% of the people that I surveyed said they would either buy or subscribe should such a publication exist. Mm -hmm. And that's what prompted the, the review to begin. In fact, I knew nothing about publishing. And the books in the first issue of the, uh, of the review, I went and I bought them at Barnes and Nobles. I had no idea about advanced readers, copies <laughs> or galleys or, or the idea that a publisher would send you a book for free. This is amazing. I knew nothing of that, right? You learn and, and we've learned because you've learned. So uh, from, from that time to this, how many books do you think uh, have come through quarterly Black Review of Books? That is an amazing question. <laughs> I'm afraid to answer it because then I'd have to, I'd be confronted by my mortality, Janice. (laughs) (laughs) They are that many. I look on the website alone and I see the number of books that we've covered. And uh, geez, I'm amazed. I think I know, I, I have sort of have a good, you know, visual history of the books that we've covered. But, you know, geez, there are so many that I, I, I just... Don't even recognize some of them. Mm-hmm. 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 But we, so I have to say thousands. It has to be in the thousands. And- yes, yes, absolutely. At, 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 you know, at what point I had to make a decision whether I was a book review publication or a library for the number of books that I had. Mm. And that year I gave away 4,000. So I know, <laughs> I, I know that it's easily into double digits. Easily in the double digits. Double digits, thousands, thousands, yes. yes. Um, Max, what were you before you got this idea? Or who were you before you got this idea? (laughs) Well, before I got this idea, I was writing script. I was writing code, C++ at the time, C and C++ for 9X. 9X was a precursor to Verizon. So uh, 9X stood for New York, New England Exchange, N-Y-N-E-X, 9X. 9X was then absorbed into Verizon. We all use these (laughs) acronyms and we say them over and over again and the meaning behind them gets lost. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. 9X. So that was fun. And I tell you what prompted me to, to sort of move from a very comfortable position uh, was that I walked down the hallway one day and I saw all my colleagues sitting there and I just had a flash of a moment where I I saw myself doing the very same thing 10 years from that point and I that was really what started me looking for so who else am I what else do I like to do oh well Mm. I I love books Uh, Janice, now I know, you know, in, in retrospect, ne- in my next lifetime, if I love books, I'll just become a librarian because, it, <laughs> <laughs> because the business of, you know, of books is, is quite, you know, is quite a story, is quite challenging. Well, let's talk about that for a moment because the business of books has definitely changed. And, you know, I, I know that when I launched Harambe, I got a call one day from, from an editor who said, because you exist, she said, you may never buy any of our specific books, but because you exist, we can now get books through the editorial process that we could not get 
before mm-hmm. because the insistence was that any book that came through the editorial process had to have the possibility of a of a book club deal. And because none of the book clubs were taking black books, it mm-hmm. meant that that was close to the number of black books that were getting published. Now, right. at that same time, obviously, to promote those books, you needed some kind of a book review forum. Mm-hmm. And about a similar number of books, not totally zero, but a similar number of books, book reviews were covering uh, books by black authors. And so you had to, with this books in the tens of thousands that have come through the pages or web pages of QBR and QBR.com now, you had to have had a significant change on the business of books by by that. So for you, what is the change that you have seen? Well, you, you know, I tell you, Janice, I, I, I <laughs> you know, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So one would like to think that one has caused impact. That's a gift. If, if one is allowed that opportunity and one can meet it, that's, that's, an, that's an amazing life. You know, it, it's, it's, it's all that one would ask for. But, you know, within that, there are cycles that, that are sometimes greater than intention. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, if you look at things historically, there has always been this sort of 30-year interest in African-American writing and letters. You know, when Harlem it, was in vogue. When Harlem was in vogue, that's right. So in, in literature, there was the work of Charles Chestnut and Paul mm-hmm. Lawrence Dunbar, you know, in, in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And, and then in the 20s, you know, there was the, the 20s and 30s, it was the Harlem Renaissance. And mm-hmm. then after the Harlem Renaissance, there was the Black Arts Movement. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and, and then after the Black Arts Movement, you know, then we had, you know, the, the Terry McMillan's, what prompted the last 20 years, 25 years of interest in books. But what's telling about that is that, you know, we have these spikes and then it wanes. In Wayne's. And so my intention, my mission was to make sure, was to do what I can to ensure that we did not sort of fall off the social grid mm-hmm. uh, in the area of arts and letters. Um, and so that's, you know, that that's basically my work. And, and what, but what we're experiencing now is the back end of an interest that began about 20 years ago. It, and it, you may recall that that sort of the the market was awakened to to uh, to a black reader, you know, the body of black readership, with a book titled. But uh, uh, it was by Shaharazad Ali. Oh goodness, yes. You remember that book, yes. uh, and, and I, I I forget the title because it's a little. It was a little offensive, you know how how to do something with. In fact, I remember that we had major debates on whether or not we were going to carry it on Harambe's pages. Um, That's right. But following that came Terry McMillan's Waiting to Excel. Mm-hmm. Mama. And, and, and that was uh, very much acceptable uh, as a conversation and well-received, you know, deservedly so. 
and uh, and that began sort of this current interest in in books of you know of which Harambe and QBR and the Harlem Book Fair were part of. And the book was Shahrazad Ali's The Black Man's Guide to Understanding the Black Woman. Read it before she does was the way. <laughs> Ah, was the way the header read. Oh, okay. and I, thought, I thought you were offering a... a, 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 a uh, no, that's on the cover <laughs> of the book. And okay. the offensive part of it was because at that point, she was coming at a very conservative part of the nation of Islam, and it had elements to it that did derive from how many steps behind your man, a black woman, should be walking. It definitely was unreconstructed, let's put it that way. But you're raising that book as a turning point. It also, what it did do was it rallied uh, voices. People actually got to speak about a book. And then those people who'd been saying blacks don't buy books, blacks aren't interested in books had to say, wait a minute, all these people are coming out and talking about this book. Mm-hmm. There, there is interest by black readers in black books. And then that, of course, as you say, the the next uptick was what happened with Terry McMillan's Waiting to Exhale as the book. And then when it became the movie, mm-hmm. we had women going in groups to see the movie and the the phenomenon of black women's book groups had had emerged and then those book groups were going as groups and buying i know our group in in Fairfield County Connecticut bought out a theater so we could all go the same night to Very see nice. you know to see this movie and a friend of mine told me that in Boston the Lynx had done the same thing so that was happening all across the country. And you see, Janice, and, and this is why I enjoy the work of books, because uh, what underlines that idea is the voice that books give access to. Mm. So we want to make sure that we acknowledge not only we as, as a reading community, but as importantly, voice was once again quote unquote, allowed in the space of arts, in the space of letters, in the space of intellectual exchange, in the space of, of social opinion, in, this, in, in the space of social context, in the space of I am here and you are there and what's in the gap and how did that gap come to be and how does that gap change? All of that happened under the umbrella of books and so what sparked the, the interest was, you know, not just the acknowledgement that we are and always have been a reader community, but prior to that, the lack of access to, to contributory voice, to social, to social voice, to social input. For the first time, albeit in our own circle, we were given a place from which to say, which then spilled over into into the general market. When we come back, more with our guest, Max Rodriguez, 
founder of QBR, the Black Book Review, home to the Video Book Channel. Kahil with the Book Channel Online. What do you like best about the fall? Is it the cooler weather or the leaves changing colors? For me, fall is a perfect time to curl up with a good book, and our new and current nonfiction list will keep you happily turning pages. In 1968, Wyoming Atias became the first person ever to win gold medals in the 100 meter sprint in two consecutive Olympic Games, a feat that would not be repeated for 20 years. Tiger Bell chronicles Tyus's journey from her childhood as the daughter of a tenant dairy farmer through her Olympic triumphs. Tiger Bell provides insight on what it takes to be a champion and what it means to stake out an identity in an often hostile world. Tyus's exciting and uplifting story offers inspiration to readers from all walks of life. The Book Channel Online. My authentic self was really a, a prelude to my memoir. I wanted to give people some insight uh, on my personal journey as a person and becoming this artist. So the book, like myself and my art, is multi-layered. It really talks about how art, culture, and embracing everything, and spirituality, and embracing everything authentic about yourself helped me find my, my calling and my purpose in life. And the book is thematic. You know, I, I focus on those foundations of my life, like education and, cult and uh, religion, politics, and other aspects of my culture to show that through those systems, I was able to, to be reconnected to who I am authentically, Leroy, and connect with this artistic ability that was part of my authentic self that was once suppressed. So, so the book has a lot of loose stories, right? Each loose story is about me, but they represent the themes that I just mentioned. And each loose story, you'll see a body of work that also chronicles my creative journey, it's retro period, all the way up until now. More on the Janice Adams Show after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest. Max Rodriguez. He's founder and CEO of QBR, the Black Book Review, and the Harlem Book Fair. You were saying before that we have always read, and I think that is something it would be great to put into context because, you know, at least now as a society, we are acknowledging that Blacks were not allowed to read and write. But that doesn't mean we didn't. Mm. Okay. You know, we could start at Alexandria. We could start at Timbuktu. We could start at so many <laughs> places that we don't usually start when we talk about black literature and culture. But when you think about the trajectory of our books, where do you begin the story? Well, you know, again, it, it, that lives for me within a historical cultural context. You know, the... Uh, uh, what we know 
is that a people cannot survive without uh, a history. Uh, no, they can't survive without a history, uh, whether it's oral or written. Much has been said about uh, you know, the, the African culture uh, being an oral, uh, an oral culture. And, and certainly it is that, but not to, the not to the exclusiveness of not having written its story. So the projection is that some cultures write, some cultures tell stories, and then there's a value given to each of those. Well, what we know, Janice, is that life being existence is not an either or proposition. What about the possibility of Black people having been an oral people and a written people? And simply that the written element was not elevated. In fact, we know historically that the written element was historically destroyed, as in the libraries of Alexandria in Egypt. Yes. Uh, your question for me lands in that, you know, that sort of cultural historical context. Uh, we can talk about the African-American roots of writing or, or even the Caribbean roots of writing mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, the Black arts movement started in the Caribbean with negritude. And that idea of negritude moved up into the States, flourished in Chicago, and then came into Harlem where it expressed itself as the Harlem Renaissance. It is in no way static. Uh, it, like everything else, has, has no beginning and has no end. It is the story of humanity. Mm. And as long as humanity has existed and will exist, we as a humanity tell our stories and write our stories. Black folk are no exception to that. That said, what are the stories that we are craving to hear now? You know, that's a good question. I have a particular view. The stories that we are craving are the stories that we are living. The stories that we are craving are the stories that we want to tell about ourselves and the stories that we want told about ourselves. Again, books are simply the means by which information is transmitted. What we want is voice. We want to acknowledge ourselves, or you know, let me just say it that way because it, it is something that we want. We, we want an acknowledgement that we are a humanity that contributes to humanity at large. The stories that we're craving are the stories that we are living to be told about us in, in, in the way we see ourselves. From Quarterly Black Review of Books, you then launched an amazing brand called the Harlem Book Fair. Tell us about mm -hmm. the Harlem Book Fair. Our offices were downtown New York in Soho. And at that time, Harlem was, was expanding. It was being invested into by the city. There were empowerment zones that were managing the growth areas in Harlem. And one of those areas was business development. I received a call uh, asking if I would be interested in moving the business uh, into Harlem, oh. moving it from downtown and, 
and locating uh, into Harlem. Um, I thought that was a great idea. And at the same time, uh, in, in, in considering that, I also realized that there was no public event that celebrated our stories in writing. There was no book festival. How could that be? And so I moved the business into Harlem and at the same time launched uh, the book fair. The original idea for the book fair was uh, the Strivers Row book fair. Uh, for those of us who are familiar with Harlem, there is a section uh, there called Strivers Row, a lot of limestones and brownstones, very attractive, beautiful architecture. Mm -hmm. But I also realized that perhaps only people in Harlem knew Strivers Row, but everyone knew Harlem. And so we went from Strivers Row, which never saw public view, to the Harlem Book Fair. And uh, that was it. I, our first year, we had, um, I think, about 40 exhibitors and, and just about 500 people. And in, in a few short years, we had over, you know, 250 exhibitors and, you know, over 30,000 people. Um, it was quite amazing. And now the Harlem Book Fair is national. It is national, and there have been many regional book fairs that are not connected to the Harlem Book Fair that have grown from the idea that every community should celebrate itself through writing. And yes, we have had book festivals across the country. Many of those now stand on their own. My focus is the Harlem Book Fair continuing to grow that as our flagship event and the African-American flagship book festival, but also in building out the video book channel. I'm excited in a way about the video book channel that I first was when I was running from 18th Street down to 14th Street, trying to get people to give me some answers for my uh, questionnaire. And for that reason, we can't just say that casually. Well, the video book channel. No, it's a big deal. Well, you know, it's, uh, I thought I had a website, but what I have there is really a, what, what I call a, uh, a cine site, C-I-N-E, right? Because mm. it, it's, Oh, it's, great. I got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interactive. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's gone from being flat as an informational to, to what I think is just this close to being experiential. Oh, I love that. When we come back, more with our guest, Max Rodriguez, founder of QBR, the Black Book Review, home to the Harlem Book Fair and the Video Book Channel. The Book Channel Online. Hello, book lovers. I'm Stephanie Harris Byers, and welcome to the Book Channel Online. Today, we're speaking with writer, novelist, Tony Lindsay, author of his latest title, The Killing Breeze. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for having me. And we want to talk about The Killing Breeze. Tell us about it. It is a psychological thriller um, about societal unrest in a, a, um, a made-up city. Um, I, I use a city called Falcon City, but with true and current issues that are affecting the Black community. Like what? It's an urban city, and it's about police killings. Um, basically, but it's also about um, societal oppression, um, the black community being 
um, under attack in an urban environment. So there's a lot of uh, institutional racism. There's a lot of irony in the, in the piece, a lot of satire. So hopefully you'll um, you read it and you'll laugh a little. Were you inspired by the killings, the, the police shootings of unarmed black men? A writer always has something to say, okay? But a good writer, a good black writer has something to say about his community or her community. And this is my uh, saying about the police shootings. And it's a good book too. You know, it's a very good read. Hi, I'm Cahill with the Book Channel Online. Are you planning on a deep beach tan or taking a much needed vacay or just planning some quiet me time this summer? We have some great summer reads for you. Some are new, some not so new, but they're all sure to heat you up while you sip that seaside mango martini smoothie. Have you ever had a bitter rival that you could never get rid of no matter how hard you tried? Well, that's what's up in The Woman Next Door by Yawande Omotoso. Hortensia and Marion are neighbors. Both are successful women with impressive careers, but both are living with questions, disappointments, and secrets that have brought them shame. Sworn enemies, the two share a deliberate hostility. One day, an unexpected event forces them together. Can they discover common ground, or must scorned women forever live the hell of their fury? Your summer will get steamy hot with our next pick, Strategic Seduction. Cheris Hodges dazzles readers with a memorable romantic sizzler featuring two headstrong characters, the heir of a hotel empire and a public relations pro who come together for business and pleasure. Alicia needs a major career boost and has no time for romance. Richmond is on a make-or-break project, but she and Richmond can't see eye-to-eye on anything, except that the reckless attraction between them is sizzling off the charts trouble. Take a deep dive into colonial history. Never caught the Washington's relentless pursuit of their runaway slave, Ona Judge. Ona was once the prized property of President George Washington and his wife, Martha. When Ona escaped, an intense years-long manhunt organized by Washington himself began. The attempt to capture Ona by any means necessary lasted even beyond Washington's presidency. Author Erica Dunbar reveals the story of a woman who made the decision to run for her life, leaving behind her family, friends, and life in the president's house. How's that for getting your cherry tree chopped, George? Never Caught is not just another freedom story. It's a portrait of a Washington few people knew. If you love family sagas and the melodrama they bring, No One Is Coming To Save Us by Stephanie Watts was made for you. Long Island's Gold Coast goes black in this brilliant recasting of F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic, The Great Gatsby. JJ returns home after 17 years gone. He plans to build his dream home and marry his childhood sweetheart, but everything and everyone has changed. JJ's wealth brings a meddling cast of characters to consider what more they want and deserve from life and how they might go about getting it. As you work on your outer glow, get your inner glow to shine too. Christy Watts, a former co-host of the 700 Club, has written Talk Yourself Happy to help get you through those tough times. After her marriage dissolved and she left her high-profile position at the 700 Club, Christy was excited to walk into a new season of life. 
Soon, though, she stumbled into emotional pitfalls that left her discouraged and disappointed. Empowering readers with practical steps to talk yourself happy, she provides a roadmap to the transformation of readers' hearts and encourages them to take it, speak it, and live it. I'm Cahill for the Book Channel Online. Thanks for watching and keep those pages turning. More on the Janice Adams Show after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what? Trying to make it real compared to what? We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Max Rodriguez, founder and CEO of QBR, the Black Book Review. Here he is on his brainchild, the video book channel, interviewing Eddie Glaudy Jr., author of Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul. Hi, I'm Max Rodriguez, and this is Writers on Writing. So, so how did you come to be Eddie? Not Eddie the writer, not Eddie the professor, but Eddie the person. How does Eddie live his life inside out? Yeah, I'm a country boy from Moss Point, Mississippi. Mm. Right, um, working class family. Uh, although when my dad got hired at the post office, you know, that's high cotton back in that's those right, days. That's right, indeed. Um, but my mother, uh, uh, Clean, was part of the cleaning crew for the English Shipyard for most of her life until she became a supervisor of that cleaning crew. So I'm, I'm, I'm indelibly shaped and, and, um, and formed by that experience. Grew up Catholic on the coast of Mississippi, mm. last name Glaude. Part of the first uh, uh, church uh, started by uh, uh, the Josephites on the coast of Mississippi, St. Peter's Apostolic Catholic Church. So I grew up with St. Martin de Porras and grew mm. up uh, with Second Vatican. Uh, my dad grew up with, you know, Latin masses. I didn't. Um, uh, and it, it, it shaped me. And then, you know, my father is a unique man, you know. Um, grew up deathly afraid of him. Uh, but he's such a principled uh, fellow. Um, when, they, when we moved into the house on, on the hill in Briarwood, the kids behind us shot out the back window with a pellet gun. And my dad responded with a 12-gauge shotgun and blew a limb off their oak tree and said, shoot back here again. And when I was in the fourth grade, uh, a, a, a teacher of mine just badgered me because I was always in advanced classes. And she just badgered me and I just stood up and yelled, you're a racist and walked out of it, ran out of the, um, the school, the class. And I, I was, I'm deathly afraid of my father. I thought I was gonna get really killed. Right? <laughs> when I got home, I uh, thought it was, you know, hell was to be paid when I got home. And he asked, he said, so what did she say? And I told him, and he said, well, if anybody ever says anything like that to you again, you do the same thing. Yeah. Um, I was uh, elected youth governor of the state of Mississippi with those YMCA stu student legislatures. Mm. And, you know, it was this big deal. Mississippi youth elect this black kid, elected this black kid as, you know, youth governor. Um, and I came home and my dad said, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, I should have won by landslide. And he said, well, you're not cute anymore. You know, you need to understand that. The older you get, the more dangerous your voice becomes, but don't ever lose your voice. Um, so it's in that, those formative 
moments. And mm -hmm. my sister was valedictorian of our high school, and she went to Spelman. And she came home, and she said, something's missing in you. You need to go to Morehouse. And I said, well, I want to get out of the house because me and my dad didn't get along, even though he was wise. So I applied for an early admit program to Morehouse, and I got in. Mm. And uh, there was, I was drenched in Baptist waters. Heard mm -hmm. all of the best preachers in the country, around the world, and got a sense of who I imagined myself to be. I was educated at Morehouse, trained at Princeton, but educated at Morehouse. Became, uh, it gave me a way to see myself and the world. Life has changed. We are now driven by technology, and, and technology is, in fact, the, uh, the tail that wags the dog. I think if, in fact, the, the call word for, for this period of time through technology is disruption, then <laughs> our answer to that is reinvention, mm. so, uh, which, is, which is an amazing opportunity to sort of sit back, look at oneself, sort of gauge the landscape of things, and then reassess and reinvent oneself within that new landscape. It's a mobile world now. If in fact books are simply a means by which information is delivered, then the question is now, who is it being delivered to and where are they? And how often can I get that information to them? Or more specifically, how can I get that information, information to them at the time that they need it? Because if at one point the call to retail was location, location, location. Now it's content, 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 and delivery, delivery, delivery. It's as Aldous Huxley would say, you know, it's a brave new world, mm. you know, meeting our reader where they are. In that meeting that reader where they are, not only meeting them where they are, but having the technology and the means to control that interchange that connection between you and the audience. How has that really changed the books, changed our access to books, and changed how we as a people, with all its diversity, because I'm not pretending that there's one model that says all black people, there certainly mm -hmm. is not, mm -hmm. but what we feel our engagement with books and information is, what's happening? Hmm. Well, there, I hear a couple of questions in there, Janice. Uh, all of them, you know, very uh, insightful. They all drill down. You know, uh, one is some things still don't change. The model is still the same. We live in a capitalist democracy, so that we're still all consumers. The consumer has been given more voice, i.e. social media, um, but, but still the question is, you know, how do, we, how do we continue to make buying easy? That side of, of the equation has not changed. In terms of, of uh, projecting one's own stories into the marketplace, that too has not changed. It's still a pricey endeavor to develop content and to stake claim 
for your voice. You know, in, in publishing, they say, you write the book and then the work begins. It's the same now on digital platforms. You still have to find your audience. And between you and your audience, there are a lot of people who say, pay me. There are a lot of gatekeepers mm -hmm. between us and our audiences. The landscape hasn't changed. What has changed are what the players are wearing, but it's still a question of access to capital. Access to capital, um, but at the same point, I'm always struck by, even though, and I alluded to it before, the historical concept, blacks being forbidden to read and write, and yet mm -hmm. had midnight schools to teach others how to read and write. There is something about blacks that has still had us on the cutting edge of the book phenomenon in the United States. In particular, I'm thinking about the black women's book groups of the 1800s <laughs> that became the black women's clubs that morphed into networks for the Underground Railroad. And that was the drum. I remember in the 1980s, I moved to Connecticut. It was unusual in, in this 99% white market. We had two black realtors, one in Westport, Connecticut, and one in Wilton. And so as people heard about these new young crop of black executives who were coming into the major corporations at that time, you know, IBM and so forth. Right. The black realtors, even if they didn't have that person as a client, they would somehow get to them and connect them with one of the black women's book groups that nice. was in the area. And that became our drum. And it seems to me that some of this this way that we operate, this this um, renewal and reestablishment of the drum, I cannot not say, my goodness, look at what is happening right now with the most exciting phenomenon that's going on in the book world, and it is called <laughs> Michelle Obama. <laughs> You know, okay. that she has, it's not something that's going to be easily replicated by any means. But as a, as a person who, who, meaning me, transcends the era where I could not get funding for my book enterprise because even in the book industry study group said that blacks do not read and buy books. And so that was the reason to deny funding. Mm-hmm to come to the point where it is the first black first lady who has literally changed our access and the way we approach books in a way that is, it, you know, it, there are two sides to it. And I'm sure you'll allude to that when some of the tickets are going for as high as a thousand dollars a pop, there are two sides to it, but it, this woman has definitely changed what publishing means. How have you seen this? You know, I, I take a, a slightly different approach. Michelle Obama is phenomenal, um, and she is also a phenomena. Yes. In that, yes. You know, we I think we had the same conversation about Oprah. Mm hmm You know, uh, and so I I tend not to look at the individual. The exception um, is not the rule. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
And, and I see Michelle Obama, as I see Oprah Winfrey, not as much as an individual as a reflection of a community. Mm-hmm. Because neither Oprah nor Michelle Obama appeared in and of themselves. Uh, they were nurtured and trained, for lack of a better word, within an African-American experience. And for me, that experience makes them as much an American as anything else. I acknowledge Michelle Obama for who she is and what she does, but I tend to shy away from the idea of exceptionalism only because it serves everyone else to detriment. She is exceptional to anybody who has written a book in the last 50 years. She is the rock star because she's <laughs> yeah, that's, filling that, stadiums that's, as an that's author. That's good. That's good. And we all need heroes. You know, mm-hmm. I want to let the people who are following the hero know that they too can be that hero. Good. That's my, that's my work. Exactly. Those two women are good women to be the heroes or sheroes because they are as committed to what you're saying as you are absolutely those are two women they're my heroes yes they're they're amazing it's it's funny you should mention that because just last night i was i was watching a uh uh, a documentary on quincy jones oh uh the arranger the musician the composer uh and just before that or weeks before that a documentary on john coltrane Mm. and you know they are heroes. I was looking at a documentary on Alice Walker. You know, they are heroes. We need them because they, they are the, guy, the lights that guide us. I think what's exciting about the people that you're mentioning, though, is that these are people with their heads screwed on straight, to be basic about it. We have had people put before us who were someone else's heroes, and then we were told that they should be ours as well, and they did not always serve us well. Um, I don't put Michelle Obama and Oprah Winfrey in that, or even Quincy Jones in that category. Um, and, And I think I may have seen the same program about uh, it was a it was a celebration of Quincy at 85. It, it was a retrospective on his life. Oh well well BET did an amazing concert and one of the things that it made me remember is the connection between Quincy and Ray Charles's very young man. Yep, that's right. You know and then even Quincy and and my husband as very young men and what it meant to be um, the young Turks of that era and what they were into. They stood out and they were exceptional because they were given the room in which to be exceptional. Mm-hmm. And they did provide hope, if nothing else, for a lot of other people. But I think it was also the way they greeted other people that mm-hmm. made the difference. Yes, I agree. So we've looked at that. If Michelle Obama isn't particularly the phenomenon that will drive the black book industry, where is the black book industry now as an expression or as a representation of the culture? And where does it need to go? Where does it need to go? Well, it needs to follow its audience. 
it has to engage society, technology in how it moves, society and how it moves and technology and how it moves us in order for it to remain relevant. There is a hierarchy and in publishing that hierarchy are, you know, the big box publishers, uh, you know, the university presses, the independent presses, the small presses, the self-published. There's a hierarchy. Those are, are simply titles that represent the access to resource that each of those enterprises bring to the conversation called publishing. We are and will be as relevant as our ability to maintain collaborative relationships, both among ourselves and with those who do not publish black themed books. Mm -hmm. Again, it's still a business model. Distribution, distribution, distribution. Audience, audience, audience. So uh, what's coming up for QBR and for your audience? What's coming up, we're going to continue with you know, introducing writers through our video channel. Uh, I read a book recently, you might want to read it yourself, How Nine Million Africans Will Change the World. It's a book about the fact that in Africa, they may not have access to widescreen TVs or mm. even laptops, but everything for them happens in their handheld, on their phone. Yes. Tap into that market and that creates ways. So we're going to start interviewing writers from around the world and, and bring them into uh, a conversation of the writings of the African diaspora, whether you're in London, you're in Ghana, you're in, you know, St. Lucia, whether you're in Brazil, writers of the diaspora, we're going to ensure that our stories are told and shared. I will tell you now that I am part of a delegation, an African-American publisher's delegation that's been invited to attend the Havana Book Festival. Oh, how wonderful. But I'm also bringing a camera crew with me, so we're going to we're going to videotape it. So, just like technology, it's funny. I was thinking about technology. What's interesting about technology is that technology is perpetually imperfect. What drives technology is our insistence in closing those imperceptions alongside the vision that we have for what else technology can do. That is a dynamic that simply leaves us in understanding that we live life on a curve. And oftentimes we can't see around the curve. We take the next step without knowing what that step is going to bring. Mm -hmm. That is life itself. That's the juice of life. We never know what's going to happen the next day. And we have the opportunity to meet it with trepidation or meet it with great anticipation. We get to choose and however we choose, is how we take it on. I can't wait to follow the journey. Thank you, Thank Max you, Rodriguez. Today on the Janice Adams Show, our guest has been Max Rodriguez, founder and CEO of QBR, the Black Book Review, home to the Harlem Book Fair and the Video Book Channel. Our thanks to him and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, including links to the Video Book Channel interviews heard today, 
visit my website, JanusAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janus Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what...